You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're going to be looking at James 3, verse 13, and then we're going to dive into chapter 4, verse 3. You know, the chapter divisions in the Bible are synthetic. So what we see here is really one train of thought in this section of Scripture. And I think what James is trying to describe here are two types of wisdom that people buy into. And I think that the people whom James is talking to, these people are interested in spirituality, and yet they're profoundly self-deceived in a lot of ways. So one of the things that James wants to do is he wants to not only enlighten them about the true wisdom that comes from God, but also expose the false wisdom that comes from the world. And he does this by sort of probing into some of the relational patterns that he sees within this group. Let's read our passage. He says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So he sort of lumps all of these different behaviors like bitter envy and selfish ambition and boasting under this category of what he calls the wisdom that doesn't come from heaven but is earthly, or what we might call the wisdom from below. And then he contrasts that with what he says in verse 17 and 18, where he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." So he describes these type of relational patterns or behaviors as what he calls the wisdom that comes from heaven, so the wisdom from above. So we see two types of contrasting wisdom that James is putting forward, the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from below. We sort of want to unpack each one of these elements, not spending equal time to each one, but but sort of focusing in on some of the ones that I think are a little bit more relevant to our situation. So let's look at these two different ways of looking at the world, the wisdom from above versus the wisdom that's from below. First of all, he describes this wisdom from below as being one that is characterized by selfish ambition. And you see this in our world today where people want to be Uh, out there, they want to promote themselves. As the old saying goes, the the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so if you want to get recognition, if you want to be noticed, if you want to be promoted, then you need to shout from the rooftops and get people's attention. And what happens oftentimes with selfish ambition is it actually spirals into unethical behavior because ultimately what you want is to get this ambition that you have been striving for. Now, 
it's sad to say that there's really a great deal of self-promotion and sort of jockeying that happens even among God's people. We see this even in the New Testament that the apostles were vying for a place at the kingdom where they could take this prominent position in, in Jesus' kingdom. And they weren't doing this because they wanted to serve. They wanted to be recognized. And you see this sort of attitude where a lot of times within this context, individuals will often use spirituality as a way to boost their ego and to promote themselves. By contrast, I think the wisdom from above is a drive to accomplish and godly ambition. Notice that James describes this as selfish ambition. He doesn't say that all ambition is wrong because when you look at God, he created us to have ambition. When you look at somebody and they don't have any sort of ambition in their lives, you think to yourself, there's something wrong with them. When you look at the Garden of Eden, what did God say to the original humans? He said, I want you to go and cultivate the land. So he set goals for them, for them to accomplish. And so likewise, that is a part of our being, our characteristic as being human beings, that God wants us and has built us to accomplish. And that's the reason why we feel good when we strive for years to accomplish something and we finally obtain it. Not only that, we see that there's a type of godly ambition as well. You think about Romans 15 verse 20 where Paul says, it's my ambition that the gospel is preached to areas where it was not yet known. And then in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, Paul says that it is a worthwhile ambition for people to want to aspire to become an elder in the church. So some of us are sort of harboring these ambitions to become spiritual leaders or to influence people spiritually. And we sort of sometimes feel like that's a bad thing. And yet what the Bible says is that ambition, if it's not selfish, if it's not about trying to elevate self, but instead if it's aimed at trying to serve God and others, is actually a worthwhile ambition. The other thing he talks about is bitter envy. You know, bitter envy is that kind of feeling you get when you see somebody succeeding at something that you're trying to accomplish, but they happen to be doing it better than you. That sinking feeling in your heart like, ah, oh, man, I wish they would have failed. Or, you know, it would have been really nice if they could have fallen flat on their face. And, you know, bitter envy can crop up in our hearts at any time whenever we want something that someone else has or whenever somebody is accomplishing something that we believe we should get recognition for. Again, by contrast, the wisdom from above is about aspiring for others. It's about putting yourself in the background and pushing other people forward. That there's actually a happiness and a desire to see other people accomplish things and that there isn't a shred of jealousy in our hearts that other people are getting the recognition that we are not getting. The wisdom from above is also pure. Now, this word could also mean righteous or good. And really what he's talking about here is that God has given us a life that is set by his will, whether we follow it or not. And 
he has sort of set the banks of the river for how we should live. And anytime we step outside of that, it's damaging not only to us, but to people around us. And so what he's talking about is a life that is determined by God's moral right and wrong, how he describes it in the Bible, in his written word. Whereas the wisdom from below is unbounded. It's willing to step outside of what God says in order to accomplish what we want or to get what we desire. Wisdom, according to verse 17, is also peace-loving. So one of the characteristics you should see from a follower of Christ is that they bring peace wherever they go. Not only trying to bring peace between God and people who are alienated from him, but also that that individual brings about peace within community as well. Jesus talks about his followers and he says, blessed are those or happy are those who are peacemakers. So this should be a characteristic that you see within followers of Christ is that they bring about peace wherever they go. Whereas the wisdom from below describes somebody who is pugnacious, somebody who's always looking for a fight. I mean, we all know that kind of person where whenever there's an argument that breaks out, I mean, it's like, it doesn't even matter if this person actually believes what they're saying. They just want to win that argument. And it's so frustrating to have conversations with them. You know, the thing that you'll notice about somebody who's peace-loving is that they're not petty. They're willing to overlook wrongs. They're not harboring bitterness and anger toward people. And they're willing to take a loss instead of looking for ways to repay people for what they've done. Now, I think it's important for us maybe to think a little bit about how to broker peace, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of other people. And I think it's important because we run into a lot of conflict in our lives, right? That's just the nature of being in close personal relationships. And I think it's important for us to see that there are different types of conflict. One distinction that you could make is that there is what you might call creative conflict. And then on the other hand, you have what's called ego-driven conflict. Now, one is bad, and destructive to relationships, whereas one can actually, the other can actually advance our relationships and draw us closer to people. Donald Bossert, in his book called Creative Conflict, sort of describes what this looks like. He says, conflicts which concern goals, values, or interests that do not contradict the basic assumptions upon which relationships are founded tend to be very positive. Yeah, when you are working on something with a team of people and there's a difference of opinion on how you should attack this particular problem or this situation that you're finding yourself in, you're involved in conflict. But as long as things don't sort of spiral into something personal, that can actually be a very positive thing because you're working collaboratively with other people who happen to have different opinions. And so through this process of dialogue and debate, a lot of times you end up with a refined idea that's much better than the idea that you put forward. He goes on to say, creative conflict is that situation in which all are satisfied with the outcome and they feel they have gained as a result. 
Destructive conflict is that situation in which participants feel dissatisfied with the outcome and all have feel like they've lost as a result. We've all been there where we've gotten into a conflict that is ego-driven and we won the conflict, but at the end of the day, we sort of felt like we lost as well. I mean, we may have won on that particular issue, but there was a loss of trust or the relationship was damaged as a result. He goes on to say, creative conflict or productive conflict is based upon the idea that conflict is not inherently destructive. It does have positive possibilities. Now, some of us may have grown up in an environment where our family never fought, everybody was very civil, and we think that that's peace. But a lot of times, in those scenarios, even though we're not expressing outward disagreement, that doesn't mean that we all agree or that we're unified. A lot of times there's resentment and anger that's sort of simmering right underneath the surface. According to Ken Sandy, a lot of people, you know, they are not into peacemaking. He says they're, they're into really peace faking, where we pretend like we're unified with each other, but in reality, there's disagreement that's just sort of subcutaneous, that's just lingering right below. He also points out, too, that there is this unique thing among churches where there is this aversion to conflict. He says there's a pathology with the use of this cooperative process, which is liable to be found with, the use, with use in the church. It is the pathology of premature agreement. This means a superficial convergence of beliefs and values before the underlying differences can come out. I think there's a lot of truth to this. You know, a lot of churches you go to, there's sort of this ethos where if you have arguments or disagreements, that that's like sinful. But how is it possible when you are surrounded by hundreds or even thousands of people to agree on every single thing? That makes no sense, right? If you have a group like that, they're stuck in groupthink. They're not individuals at that point. And so... I think that there needs to be an outlet for disagreement and positive conflict even within a community like this because after all, we're different people. We have different opinions and some of us have very strong opinions about things. He goes on to say, closely knit groups with a high frequency of interaction and high personality involvement tend to suppress conflict. Feelings of hostility tend to accumulate and intensify. And if the conflict does break out in such types of groups, it will emerge with high intensity. I mean, we don't have to look much further than most of our living situations to see that. You know, think about some of the passive, aggressive kind of interactions that we have in our ministry houses. I heard a story recently where you know, one roommate decided he was going to send out a text to his group me saying, whoever decided or, uh, you know, when people decide that they want to leave their phone in the sink, can they please not do that? As if that was like an issue that was widespread in the house, right? I mean, it was clear that it was aimed at one specific individual, but they didn't want to address it privately or to that individual. And so, you know, what happens in these kinds of environments where you're close-knit and there is this tendency to 
uh, sort of suppress conflict that may come up, it can sometimes spill out when things sort of hit a tipping point. And that may not just describe your house. It may describe your family. It may describe your home church as well. Now, I want to take sort of some time and explore this idea of creative versus ego-driven conflict. Because, you know, some of us are maybe coming from an environment where we have no concept for creative conflict. We grew up in an environment where our family was all about conflict avoidance. Whereas maybe some of us grew up in an environment where we're at the other end of the extreme where whenever a conflict would break out, it would always turn personal and we would just attack each other and yell at each other. And so I think that it's important for us to see that there is a, a, a context for us to have productive conflict within certain boundaries. When we talk about creative conflict, it challenges us to respond to healthy criticism. Sometimes people will bring up criticism in our lives and it offends us or we don't agree with it. But in creative conflict, there is an attempt to try to communicate better. And usually when the two parties come together and work things out, they feel closer as a result. I know that there have been times where people have brought up criticism with something I've said or something that I've done. And at first I was really defensive, but then after talking to them further, I started to see where they were coming from and I accepted their input. And as a result, our relationship actually grew because I knew that this person wasn't doing this because they were angry at me or they were bitter. They were stepping outside of their comfort to to bring up an issue in my life that that was something that was sort of damaging. Whereas ego-driven conflict results in personal alienation where the parties feel as if they've lost trust in one another and that they're unable to draw near. Donald Bossert says, competition, misperception, and pressure for social consistency all work to further the escalation of a destructive conflict. This leads to the suspicion and hostile attitude which increases sensitivity to differences and threats while minimizing the awareness of similarities. Isn't that true? You know, you're embroiled in a conflict and maybe it started off about something that was a real issue. It wasn't personal, but then it sort of spiraled into something personal. And after some time, you start to think to yourself, You know, I couldn't be just, you know, when I look at this person, we are so far apart in our perspectives. And a lot of times we can't even acknowledge the similarities that we agree upon. And yet the reality is when we look at the things that we agree upon, we agree upon about 97 or 98% of things and it's just these that the two or or 3% that we're disagreeing about and yet in our minds we think to ourselves, This person is so far away from my perspective that we are just seeing things from the polar opposite. With creative conflict, it centers on issues. A lot of times we are trying to work out a problem or we're trying to put our minds together to figure out a creative solution. Whereas ego-driven conflict centers on personal hurts and resentment. I remember... 
years ago, two women asked me to come in and sort of mediate a conflict that had been festering in their relationship for several years. I mean, they were very, very close. But over the years, they had done things to each other or said things to one another that had brought up resentment and bitterness in their relationship. And so as we were talking through some of the issues and the history around their conflict, I asked them this question. I said, so what would you want to see the other party do that would be satisfactory to you? And I just got blank stares. They, they didn't know, they couldn't think of one thing that the other person could do that would resolve that conflict. And, you know, asking that question is very revealing. What would you want to see the other party do or change that would be acceptable? You know, when somebody says, well, I just wish that she would just, you know, stop looking at me with that condescending look in her face whenever she speaks to me. You're like, dude, that's the way her face looks. She can't help it, right? I mean, what do you expect her to do? Or, you know, you'll hear somebody say, he just always narrows his eyes whenever he speaks to me. And it just comes off as really judgmental. And you're like, he clearly needs glasses, right? I mean, why, why are you interpreting that as him judging you? And so a lot of times when you look at conflicts that are ego-driven, they're affective conflict, right? They're not based on anything objective, They're about subjective feelings that we have about maybe the tone or the motivation that we think somebody has when they speak to us. Whereas when we talk about creative conflict, we're, we're dealing with something that actually is rooted in material issues. So for example, you know, this guy, he borrowed my car, my friend, and as he, when he parked it at the grocery store, somebody hit the car. And so we're trying to figure out who's going to pay for what. And so when you're talking about creative conflict, there is something objective that you can resolve. Whereas ego-driven conflict is based on hurt feelings and things turning personal. Again, Donald Bossert says, the course of destructive conflict tends to expand the conflict or escalate it. This leads the conflict to become independent of the initiating causes and continue after those causes have become past and irrelevant. I remember talking to my dad one time, and he described how he had gotten into a conflict with his sister where they were living together, and for an entire month, they did not speak to each other. And he was you know, describing this with a lot of regret, and I said, so what, what was the initial cause? What sparked all of this? And, you know, he stood there frozen. He could tell his, his mind was, was worrying. And he's like, you know, honestly, I don't even really remember. That happens when you have an ego-driven conflict where the initial cause of the conflict is lost. And what happens is it, it, it sort of turns into something else. It expands or morphs into something else. With creative conflict, it signals healthy communication where we want to sit down, we want to hear what the other person has to say, the complaint maybe that they have about the way we've treated them, and we're willing to respectfully take in their input. 
Whereas with ego-driven conflict, there's little desire for communication. All we want to do is to be able to speak our mind and for people to know how hurt we feel. With creative conflict, we're unconcerned with blame and past grievances. You know, maybe in the course of trying to work something out, people said something that was maybe a little bit offensive or harsh. But we know that that's part of the process of working through conflict, and we're not going to hold on to that. We're, we're willing to move on. And really, when it comes to working on a specific issue or problem, and you're engaged in vigorous discussion, you're not really concerned about whether people adopt your idea. What you're concerned about is that we came up with an idea that works. And so it's not about whether people listen to me or I got my way, but that we are able to accomplish things as a team. Whereas with ego-driven conflict, it's, it's fueled by rivalry and hate. Again, Bossert says, conflict behaviors in the competitive mode are designed to destroy, injure, or control another party or parties. And the relationship is one in which the parties gain only at the other's expense. The key is really a win-lose relationship. You know, when you look at two people who are engaged in a battle like this, where it's a win-lose, zero-sum game, you think to yourself, what, they, they, they can't put their minds together and come up with a creative solution that's going to be acceptable to both parties? Why does it have to be a win-lose situation? Can't, can't there be something where both people walk away from this feeling like, I can accept that? He goes on to say, constructive conflict is that situation in which all are satisfied with the outcome and feel they have gained as a result. Destructive conflict is a situation in which participants feel dissatisfied with outcome and they feel like they've all lost. Now, when we talk about creative conflict, it's most common in close personal relationships. Oh yeah, when you spend a lot of time with people, when you grow to love them, they're the ones who end up hurting you the most. You know, that's why you see married couples arguing and, and, and having really serious disagreements is because their lives are so intertwined with one another that they're sensitive to the way the other one responds. And so when you're engaged in a relationship, a close friendship or a marriage, or, you know, a family relationship of some kind. Those kind of relationships are really the fertile ground for conflict. In addition to that, it's most common whenever there's a strong ownership of goals. Whenever you're working toward a common goal or a project, that is going to create conflict as well as perceived urgency of issues. If you're working on something that you feel like is a grave matter, something that's going to be a life or death thing, then there's going to be a sense of, of urgency and a passion in which you're arguing for your view. And so when you look at all these things, I mean, this sort of describes what we're doing on a home church level, doesn't it? Where... We're intertwined with one another because God has woven us together as the body of Christ. 
that we are intent to accomplish a goal to try to manifest or to represent Christ in this world and that there's an urgency to what we are doing because God wants us to carry out the mission of sharing the love of God to those who don't know him. And so, yeah, that's, that's going to be the reason why you'll find that there is conflict within this kind of community. I think a lot of times people, when they start attending a home church, they're surprised when they find themselves embroiled in a conflict with somebody else that they're close to. They're like, wait, I thought I was escaping that. And you're like, actually, when you start rubbing shoulders with people in a close personal relationship, your problems start to come out more. With ego-driven conflict, it's most common in close personal relationships. Same thing. It's also most common with authority figures. The Bible teaches that we are in a state of rebellion against him, that we have thrown off his authority and have set ourselves at the center as the leader of our lives, refusing his input, refusing to listen to what he has to say. And so really, anybody who represents an authority figure in our lives, we tend to resist. I mean, have you ever noticed like, that whenever you're at work and you're in the break room, everybody's talking about how stupid the boss is? Is the boss really that much dumber than everyone else? I mean, the reason why everyone thinks the boss is stupid is because she's the authority figure, right? And that's the, peop- that's the reason why people uh, resist her and, and what she has to say. Also, with ego-driven conflict, a lot of times it's fueled by power struggles or blocked advantages, where we feel like we want something and another person or a situation is blocking us from getting that. And that's what James talks about actually in James 4 verse 1 and 2, where he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. That's really at the heart of quarrels and fights, isn't it? It's a desire to have what other people want. I've never heard of a conflict where somebody said, you know, I just, I'm just so angry at her because she won't allow me to serve her and love her. I mean, what's wrong with her? No, it's the opposite of that. It's that we want something and we can't get it. So we're fighting and we're battling with somebody else over that. He goes on in verse 2 and 3, he says, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask God with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's really sort of at the heart of what's going on here is that we, are, we want something from God. We're telling him, I want this. And when he doesn't comply, when he doesn't obey, we get angry at him. And that tends to spill over in our relationships. When we feel like there is anger between us and God or estrangement, a lot of times that leads to estrangement with the people around us. And one of the things to me that's sort of comforting whenever I look at the New Testament is that there was conflict in the new early church. 
in the New Testament church. You think about, for example, 1 Corinthians. And Paul talks about how there were believers in the Corinthian church who were taking one another to court and that they were battling over who was best, who was most spiritual. Think about Philippians chapter 4 where there were two prominent women leaders who were embroiled in an argument and in a conflict with one another and Paul calls them to try to live in unity with one another. In this case, in the audience where James is, is the, the audience to whom James is speaking, these people were really caught up in a class war. Earlier in chapter two, James talks about how the rich were mistreating the poor and that they were showing partiality. Now, in this case, it's really interesting because I think that he sort of turns the tables on the poor and says, look, the, the rich, they have their part in this. They're mistreating you. They're using their social status and their wealth to put themselves forward. But who are these people who are envying others, who are covetous? It has to be the poor envying the position of the rich. And so they were further inflaming the, the, the arguments and quarrels that were happening among the audience here that James is speaking to. And so when we are embroiled in a controversy with God, that spills over into arguments and quarrels with people around us as well. And I've seen churches that have fractured as a result of just this. I was just talking several weeks ago to some leaders of a church in Cincinnati, and this small church sort of went through this cycle where they were starting to get some traction and, and seeing more and more people join their church. But each time that would happen, there would be a, an argument within their leadership team, and there would be a mass exodus of people from their church. And they went through this several different times. And so that's one of the things that we need to do is we need to protect our community from the kind of ego-driven conflict that can tear us apart. Now, going back to the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, this wisdom from above is also considerate, according to verse 17. And considerate uh, describes that, you know, this, this idea that we are conscientious of other people, that we're thinking about others, or that it means that we're patient with people. Whereas the wisdom from below, we're hypersensitive or prickly, where we will take the, the smallest slight or we'll read a certain tone into the way that somebody's speaking to us and we'll take personal offense at that. And you know what happens is that the people around us feel like they have to walk on eggshells around us because they're afraid that they're going to offend us. We all know somebody like this. You know, it's the type of person that whenever you see them, you just want to kind of give them a wide berth because you're afraid that if you interact with them, you know, they might get angry at you. And a lot of times, sadly, these people don't realize that they have this problem. You know, one way to identify if you're hypersensitive or prickly is, do you sense that people aren't telling you what they actually think? That's probably a good sign that you have this issue because it means that people are probably afraid that they might offend you and so they're sort of holding back. 
Or maybe you feel like people don't want to draw close to you. Again, that could be another sign that you have an issue with this. Wisdom from above is also submissive. Now, this is not talking about where, you know, the kind of submission where we are uh, you know, laying down when people are trampling on us. But this is a willingness to take input from other people. A willingness to listen, to get underneath people's authority. You know, a lot of people that I encounter, especially in our fellowship, really aspire to become leaders and influencers for God. And yet one of the things I tell people, if you want to really become a great leader for God, you need to learn how to be a great follower. Because being a leader for God suggests that you are under God's authority and his leadership. And if you can't get underneath anyone else's leadership, you're never going to be a great leader for God. Whereas somebody who holds to the wisdom from below is intractable or obstinate. We all know this kind of person where it's like they may be agreeable, they may nod their head when they're talking to you whenever you're trying to give them some input or trying to help give them some direction. But then as soon as they walk away from that conversation, they do just the opposite of that. And so that really reveals where their heart is at. Or maybe they're defensive every single time you talk to them and it's clear that they just don't want to listen. The wisdom from above is also full of mercy. This means that we're willing to overlook offenses, that we are patient with people. Whereas the wisdom from below is uncaring or harsh. It's exacting. Whenever somebody wrongs you, you know, uh, the person that wronged you is expecting that you're just going to come, you know, hit them with a ton of bricks because you're, you're just not going to let it go. The wisdom from above is also impartial uh, or unwavering, meaning that uh, we are going to live according to the truth, that we're not going to uh, do things that are just pragmatic in order to get a certain result. Whereas the wisdom from below, only results matter. It doesn't matter if I step outside of the bounds of what God says, as long as I accomplish my goal. Also, the wisdom from above is sincere. And this word means literally not hypocritical. And the word in Greek actually describes a play actor, somebody who on stage is, plays a certain character, but behind the scenes acts a totally different way. And so with somebody who is holding to the wisdom from above, there should be some continuity between the way they act in front of people and the way they act behind closed doors. Whereas the wisdom from below is manipulative, where we'll, we'll spin the truth We'll leave details out of stories in order to get a certain advantage. Or we'll find ourselves politicking in order to get what we want. And so we're always trying to vie for an advantage, manipulating people in order to get the thing that, that we desire. So what can we gather from this passage? I think some of you might be sitting here and you're looking at this list and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? 
I can't really relate to anything that you listed here. You know, when, when you look at this list, all of us, to some extent or another, struggle with this, myself included. And I think one of the things that you'll notice as you grow in your relationship with God, you actually become more and more sensitized to your flaws. You start to realize to a greater degree the issues that you have. And it's not like the wheels are falling off, like you have this problem that just sort of appeared in your life. I mean, that issue has been there the entire time, but God has been gradually bringing these issues up in order to deal with them and to give us victory. And so maybe if you're sitting here and you're resonating with one of these areas and you're thinking to yourself, that, that describes me. That describes an issue that I have. First of all, I want to say, welcome to the club. We've all got problems. And secondly, God is doing this because he wants to help you out. He loves you. And he knows that this issue has held you captive for a really, really long time. And it's had a destructive effect on your life. And he wants to liberate you from it. So how do we change? I think, first of all, we need to turn to God's power to change our lives. I once heard, when I, as a young Christian, this, this phrase or this saying, how can a messed up self fix a messed up self? It doesn't make much sense, does it? You know, for you to try to fix yourself is equivalent to reaching down and trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It just doesn't work. And so what you need is a power outside of yourself to change you. And the Bible says that God wants to change us. He wants to transform our lives, but that can't happen unless we invite him into our lives. You might be here because you have an issue in your life, a problem that you can't resolve. And you've tried your best to fix yourself and it's not working. What God wants you to know is that he loves you and he wants to help you, but that begins by starting a relationship with him. As I mentioned earlier, the human race is in a state of rebellion against God. We have thrown off his leadership, but God is offering us a peace deal. He has sent his own son, Jesus, to come and die and to provide forgiveness for us so that we can have a relationship with him. What's required of you then is to come to him with, with humility and to ask for that forgiveness. And by doing so, you can actually have peace with God and have a relationship with him and start this process of change. Secondly, pray for these characteristics. You know, James says, Pray for wisdom. And God, he's going to give that to you without rebuking you or without contempt because he wants to give you wisdom. And so pray that God would give you this wisdom from above. And finally, try to do these things under God's grace. Because you know what? You're going to attempt to make strides in one of these areas and you're going to have setbacks. If your walk with God is anything like mine, you're going to take three steps forward and two steps back. And you're going to feel discouraged as if you're not making any sort of progress, but over the course of your history, over months, years, and decades of following God, you'll see that God has changed you incrementally 
And most of the time, the way that you'll discover this is when people come to you and say, you know what, it's amazing that God has really changed you. And you're like, I can't, I can't believe it. I didn't realize. And so it's a gradual thing, but you need to put yourself under grace, trusting that God is working slowly and gradually in your life. We know that at one time we were at conflict with you, and yet you decided to initiate a resolution to broker peace with us through, this, through your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we thank you that you took that first step toward us. And uh, I pray for anybody who has never resolved that conflict with you, that they would first uh, turn to you and, and receive the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus Christ. And um, I pray for those of us who have experienced that already, that you can teach us how to have creative conflict. We know that conflict is inevitable in our lives, and we pray that you can help us to manage conflict in a way that is not destructive to our relationships, but one that can help us thrive in our relationships and uh, grow closer to our friends and our family. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.